This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. Over the course of several months, Justin Reed has compiled an astounding amount of raw data that highlights a major problem in NCAA soccer. What is that problem? Well, it's the overwhelming lack of diversity amongst head coaches in college soccer. And the saddest part about this problem is that almost everyone that I have spoken to about it has not been surprised. One Latino NCAA coach even tweeted, I happen to be one of the lucky 70 Latino coaches in the college game. Sad to see such a low number, but not surprised. End quote. And it seems like many people are well aware of this problem, and they are also well aware that not much is being done to solve it. Referring to the place where solutions can be discussed and changes can actually be made, one black coach told me, I'm not even allowed in that room. End quote. And another coach reached out to me to discuss this topic and said, in order for real change to happen, we need to see more minorities in admin roles, end quote. Justin's research actually addressed that very issue. And according to Justin, out of 326 Division I NCAA athletic directors, only 20 are black. And this has a major impact on the hiring process when it comes to head coaches. Patrice Paris, a coach that Justin Reed spoke with while gathering all of his data, said that a majority of the hires that take place at the NCAA level are based on networking rather than one's body of work, end quote. So it should be no surprise that hiring based on networking only continues to produce a lack of diversity. And the problem only gets worse when it comes to men and women, and even worse again when it comes to minority women. Justin, a member of the Black Soccer Coaches Association, gathered data from 1,862 NCAA soccer programs. And while he initially set out to gather data about racial diversity, in doing so, he developed a very comprehensive spreadsheet that now contains much, much more information. For example, out of 1,021 women's NCAA soccer programs, 662 of them are coached by men. And out of over 800 NCAA men's soccer programs, only one is coached by a female. During this interview, you are going to hear me ask Justin specifically about how he collected his data. And the process he described is a grueling and time-consuming process. But I want to address the fact that his data is raw and may indeed have flaws at this early stage. And after interviewing Justin... I spoke to a black NCAA coach that is familiar with the research, and he said, Justin is raising questions that will make people think. And when you put yourself out there like Justin is doing, you have to be ready to be picked apart. I just hope Justin's message doesn't get lost, end quote. And while the numbers and findings might not be perfect, it's almost impossible to dispute the idea that minorities face a number of problems in American soccer. And it's not just college soccer. Inclusion and diversity problems exist from top to bottom in United States soccer. These are topics that need to be talked about. So whether or not Justin's data is perfect, I think it's obvious that our country understands that we have a problem. In fact, inclusion and diversity were, ma were both major issues that were brought up by all eight candidates in the lead up to the 2018 U.S. soccer presidential election. And those problems are not just in regards to coaches but owners, players, and entire communities as well. So instead of just using this as a talking point, we need to see action taken at every level. And that is why I have absolutely no problem in bringing Justin on this show to talk about what he's doing. And at the time this podcast is being released, which is March of 2018, Justin is still currently developing a website that will eventually display all of his findings and act as a resource for people that are interested in learning more. But in the meantime, he has been writing articles about various topics around the lack of diversity in NCAA and American soccer, and he has started to submit them to various publications. And he has also started to share his data with many coaches throughout the NCAA community. Because his, his data isn't available, 
uh, for viewing on any website at this particular time. He instructed me to tell everybody that if you're interested in connecting with him and discussing anything that you hear in this podcast, that he can be reached by emailing media at blacksoccercoaches.org. And I want to let you know that Justin is very responsive. Every time that I had a question about uh, something in his research, which he was very nice to share with me, uh, he was super responsive and got back to me right away. He actually um, did not have all of the data about men's versus women's coaching on the female side of the game um, uh, organized at the time that I interviewed him. And I asked him about that. And then he actually spent much, much more time organizing that and putting together a separate spreadsheet for me to view. And, and then the research is just astounding. I don't know what other, what other way to describe it. Um, but like I said, Justin Reed is doing good work. He has a good message. He has a good premise. And I hope that this message, uh, gets well received. And before we get into the interview with Justin Reed, I want to give you guys a reminder that this podcast is brought to you guys by the 343 Coaching Education Program. And that coaching program is actually what funds this podcast. So if you are a member in the coaching program, not only are you getting an education that transforms you into a far better coach from the guys who have gone through that transformation themselves and are now considered among the top in the country, but you are also helping to sustain and develop this podcast. If you're not a member and you're wondering what a membership can offer you, it is the complete online resource that will help you reduce your trial and error time and help you get right to the work that matters. You learn the cutting edge training techniques that have been proven to develop better and smarter players, better and smarter teams, and better and smarter coaches. The 343 Coaching Education Program gives you insider access to exclusive videos of training sessions and full games with additional education from ebooks, audio interviews, question and answer sessions, and online forums for networking and collaboration with other coaching members. To learn more and to explore all the benefits of being a 343 Coaching Education Program member uh, and to help support this podcast, you can visit 343coaching.com. That's the numbers 3, 4, and 3, coaching, all spelled out. Com. All right, let's get into today's episode with Justin Reed. John. Hey, Justin. What's going on, man? I'm doing excellent. How are you? Doing good. Doing good. I'm going to kind of mess with your volume real quick. Can you just uh, maybe just describe where you're at really quick and that'll help me check the audio levels? Okay. Yes, I am uh, in the basement. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. All right. Cool. All right. We should be all good. Um, All right. All right, man. Well, let's. Uh, well, let me let me start by asking because I, I kind of threw out threw it out in the email and you didn't say anything. But is there anything like off limits or topics that you want to avoid? Nothing off limits, man. I'm open to everything. All right, let's go for it then. Um, I want to. I actually want to start with how I even came across anything about you. It's a funny story. So I was just, I was cruising through my through my Instagram stories one day. I think like last week or two weeks ago. I can't remember exactly when. And yeah, I think I'm, it was last week. Yep. Yeah, and so I'm friends with Andrew on uh, on Instagram, and he's a 343 member. I've met him a couple times in person. He's come out to our, our events that we've done in Vegas. I think he, he went to both of our events in Vegas. And so I'm, I'm okay. cruising through the Instagram stories, and then all of a sudden like I see these stats pop up about – uh, head coaches in NCAA, and I'm like, I I don't pay very much attention to college sports in general, but but college soccer specifically. But mm-hmm. I don't I, I don't know something something just caught my eye, and I was like, oh wow, like maybe I'll I'll take a look I'll take a look at this one. I'm not going to skip past this. And mm-hmm. the stats were very very eye opening and very very alarming. And mm-hmm. Andrew Andrew. Um, he, he sends me just stuff like when he travels to Barcelona, he'll send me pictures. And so we interact not regularly, but we, but we interact. And so as soon as I saw those stats, I sent him a message and I said, who are these from and how can I talk to him? 
because mm-hmm. I I want you on my podcast, and and that's kind of <laughs> how uh, how I got to how or how we got to right now. So we've never spoken on the phone before. We've only exchanged a few different emails. Um, I I just read your report that you uh, are getting ready to submit, so we can get into that in just a little bit. But I want to uh, I want to get a chance to just know maybe a little bit about you and your background, and and then maybe explain the project that you that you showed me and what sparked your interest in that so i know that's kind of a a wide uh wide ranging maybe place to start but just take it and run with it man sure absolutely yeah so um growing up uh, i grew up in the washington dc area i was actually born in canada edmonton alberta canada and um you know soccer has been something that's been a part of my life uh forever you know my brother played at the george washington university uh, back in the mid nineties, uh, my father is actually from uh, Trinidad and Tobago and, um, he actually had an opportunity to play for the national team. He was, uh, one of the better players at his college. And this was, uh, back in the, in the sixties. Um, you know, so soccer has just kind of been ingrained in me, you know, since I was a child, you know, I grew up, uh, you know, like I said, in the Washington DC area, I played for Montgomery, uh, soccer incorporated, which is the biggest, uh, league still to date in the area, uh, has about 15,000 kids. Uh, so I started at age four, you know, played all throughout um, the area, played for uh, the Potomac Soccer Club, Olney Soccer Club, uh, Columbia Soccer Club, and uh, went off to college, went to the University of Delaware uh, at 18, played there for three years. I was a three-year um, letter winner there. And, um, you know, it was just a, a great experience, you know, being able to Started as a youth at four and, you know, played college soccer and, you know, and after graduating, um, you know, decided to start my own organization and it's called uh, Quick Feet Soccer Training. Uh, and I started it back in 2006. So I graduated from University of Delaware, uh, 2005. Um, and the main focus of the organization is just on the grassroots developing uh, children, you know, to be able to play at the next level. So, Uh, In the beginning, you know, we started out as a program uh, that catered to players from all ages, all right, from as young as two years old all the way up to 18. So we noticed as time evolved, you know, it's better if we just kind of focused in one uh, niche market. So we decided just to focus in on the uh, kids between the ages of two to eight years old, and uh, that's what we do right now. So I actually started a club. uh, It was called Quick Beat Soccer Club, and I did that for about three years. Um, around 2010, uh, we kind of got up to about 70 players, I believe, in the club. So we had about four or five teams. And we were on the rise. We were growing until some of the bigger clubs in the area, like Bethesda Soccer Club, and uh, at the time it was called Free State Soccer Club, and now uh, Maryland United, decided to infiltrate and take our players. You know, and uh, all of a sudden we went from 70 players and growing, you know, all the way down to not having a club anymore. And you know, that has a lot to do with the way U.S. soccer is structured. Um, the states don't really protect the smaller clubs. They actually prefer to work with the bigger clubs because that's where they're getting their membership dues. I think each kid pays about $55, you know, a year, you know. So would they rather deal with a club that has, you know, 15,000 kids like MSI or Bethesda, you know, that has about $3 million in revenue? And as about, I believe there are around six, seven hundred kids who can provide that fifty-five dollars per kid, or would they rather deal with extremely small clubs? Uh, you know, like what I had back in the day. So I got rid of the whole club thing. Didn't decide to do that anymore. Uh, now the focus is strictly on training young kids. We go from two to eight years old, and we do it all throughout the Washington D.C. area. So we get up to about three hundred kids uh, per year, and um, very happy doing it. You know, I don't have to deal with the whole club soccer thing where. You know, you're traveling to this state, you're going here, you don't know where you're going to be next week, you know, and a lot of wear and tear on the car and a lot of mileage, you know, so everything is just structured. Everything is, you know, we got 13 locations. I've got about five coaches that work under me and uh, we develop kids, you know, for the next level. That sounds awesome, man. Um, yeah. One, one question that, that popped into my head right away was um, if you have any knowledge of or if you ever worked with Kefren Fuller. Uh, the name sounds familiar, but okay. I never worked with him. Because I I don't know how close he is to actual DC. Uh, well now now he's in uh, now he's in Holland, but he ran uh, the Joga Academy, 
and they were okay. they were basically just a small program. But he said much of the same things, where the bigger clubs kind of came in and wanted to cherry pick players away from him, and just makes it hard to operate. It sounds like you guys are kind of doing the same struggle. Exactly. I mean, you know, that was the struggle that we had when we had the club, and you know, if you don't have any rules and laws that are in place to protect you and protect your club from growing, then it's kind of like, well, what the hell is the point of doing the club? You know, it's well, not like overseas where, you know, you can develop a child and then you move that kid on to a bigger club and then that club pays a transfer fee. Yeah. Nothing like that here. There's nothing like that here in the U.S. So anybody can come in, cherry pick, take your best players, and then you know, since a lot of these teams are parent run, as soon as, you know, two or three of the better players leave and all of a sudden now your kid's aren't winning games anymore, then all of a sudden now the rest of the team starts leaving. Everybody starts becoming unhappy. So that's kind of where it's yep. at in the country yep. overall. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's funny. Tough. It's it's not funny, but um, it's good that you brought that up because it's not something that really gets – uh, mainstream attention like the payment or the solidarity payments and the work that you know smaller clubs do but are not compensated for in in the United States soccer and that should be yep. more that should be more talked about and and I had no intention of, of actually talking to you about that today so I'm, I'm surprised yet uh, pleasantly surprised that you brought it up because it, it obviously affected the way that you ran your small business and people don't look at it as like a small business they they look at right. it as just like oh yeah it's youth soccer who cares but it's like no that's you exactly know, it's it's a small business and you should be able to run it just the same way that they do around the world so absolutely absolutely and and, and for many of us I mean it's our it's our lifestyle you know it's the way that we make our living yep. you know so all of a sudden you know you're bringing in you know eighty ninety thousand dollars of a small club in revenue you know you're taking home half of that after your expenses. And then a big club who's making $3 million, like Bethesda, if you look at their 994, comes in, swoops in, take all your players, and all of a sudden, that revenue is gone. Now you got to find other ways to make a living. So it's not right. right. It's not right. And it's something I hope that Carlos Cordero and, you know, everybody at U.S. Soccer, you know, can, can look at and help to protect the smaller clubs, you know. And I have no interest in getting back into doing a club again. So, you know, I wish everybody <laughs> doing that, you know, the best of luck. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's good that – that you mentioned it and we talk about it not not enough on this podcast but we probably should talk about it more because it is a central issue that needs to get more attention so uh every little bit that we can talk about it i'm i'm thankful for so uh, right. maybe 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 i just need to step up and do more episodes about that specific topic maybe Absolutely. maybe i'll make that my mission for for next month <laughs> <laughs> But for for today, for what we for what we have you on the show for is is another topic that is very rarely talked about, should be talked about more often. Um, and I want you to kind of kind of introduce the topic and again, why you decided to kind of go after it the way that the the way that you are going after it now. Sure. So so I actually joined the uh, Black Soccer uh, Coaches Leadership Group of the United Soccer Coaches that joined. Uh, about six, seven months ago. So we were just together in, in, in Philadelphia at the United Soccer Coaches Convention, and we had a, a lunchtime social that we put together. Um, Kim Crabby, who is the first uh, African-American woman uh, to play for the national team, she was present. Um, uh, Lincoln Phillips, he was actually the founder of the Black Soccer Coaches uh, Association under the United Soccer Coaches. Uh, he was present as well, and he's actually the first uh, black coach to win a national championship with Howard, uh, and this was back in the 70s. Um, uh, Aguchi Onyewu, uh, who's you know a former U.S. national team member, he was present uh, at the lunchtime social. So it was great. I mean, it was a great turnout. We had about 70, um, you know, black soccer coaches and administrators. Uh, I mean, we were in full force, and it was wonderful. So after joining um, the group, I kind of decided to take on the role of the data person. You know, I've done, you know, data uh, analysis in the past and data entry, you know, at other positions that I've worked, you know, in healthcare and finance and so forth. So I just decided to take on this role and I just wanted to go down the route of kind of figuring out, well, how many black soccer coaches are there in head coaching positions in the NCAA? Um, so it took about two months. Um, it's just me. You know, I was the one I went through each and every single college 
there's 1,862 uh, NCAA uh, programs in um, in uh, college soccer. Okay, and of course, with the women's because of Title IX, they get more programs than the men. Um, so out of that number, you know, it turned out to only be 71 black head coaches uh, who were in positions. Um, so that just became extremely, you know, alarming to me, you know, when all the numbers came forward. And um, as you can see, you know, among all the decisions, you've got uh, white coaches that are pretty much dominating um, at a pace of, you know, 90%. You know, so 90% of the positions are going towards white head coaches. So, you know, there's a lot of factors, you know, and I've shared this information with the black soccer coaches who are currently in the NCAA from the head coach to the assistant. And, you know, I've been getting a lot of good feedback from them. And I've also shared this information with people who are not involved in the system just to kind of get, uh, you know, a third-party third point of view. So, you know, there are various factors as to why we don't have that many minority coaches in these positions. It could be because the school's denomination might be Dutch, you know, for example, like Hope College. Or, you know, the school may be an Ivy League school, so they prefer a, a, a person that looks a certain way. All right? There are many factors. But when you look at it overall and you look at the number of black coaches that we have in the country, um, the USC currently has about 750 black coach member, black coaching members. But overall, uh, you know, we're not there as far as the numbers, but we're projecting it to be anywhere between, you know, 1,500 to 2,000 black coaches involved in the system in some capacity, whether it's uh, at the youth level, college, high school, or professional level. All right? So when you see the number of coaches that we have, you would think that we'd get more access to these head coaching positions, and you wouldn't see that the numbers would be so skewed where you've got, like in Division One, for example, you've got close to 90% of the coaches are white. Um, and as far as black coaches, you get, you know, less than 5%. Or as far as Latin coaches, you get close to 3%. You know, that just doesn't make up how the country looks, all right? If you look at the country's population, you've got uh, about 66% are white, and then you've got another 17% Hispanic and 13% black. So when you look at the country and then you look at soccer and seeing how many players are of, you know, black and, and Latin descent, which is close to about 40% in the NCAA, it just doesn't match up. You know, how do you have so many players playing in the NCAA where black is Latin, but then when it comes to the actual head coaching position, we're not getting those positions. All right? So that's part of the reason why, you know, I'm sure these facts became extremely alarming to you and also to other people that I've shared the information with. Yeah. One, one thing that uh, that or a conversation that I had recently was with a guy from Venezuela, and I, we, we, we both kind of – live in a similar area here in uh, in California and I was telling him that I cannot remember a single time a single team that I've played for where a Latino player was not the best player on the team or the best player on the field and that is not who is represented as coaches in this area and so I find I, I just I found that very just not at the time when it, this is before I saw all your stats, but at the time I just found it very interesting. Like, how can there be so many good Latino players that that are being that that aren't being groomed for coaching positions, or that aren't in coaching positions? It was just very interesting to right. me, and and I didn't know. I I don't know how to you know gather all that data and, and analyze that data correctly. And so when I saw somebody like you that kind of went and did that. I became super interested in that. And so you mentioned that there are only 71 out of uh, roughly 1,800 uh, head coaching positions, so only 71 black head coaches on the men's or women's side. Uh, yes. That number gets skewed even more if you if you look at you know black men to black females, so it's even less on the black female side. You had some interesting stats on that. Uh, but but the numbers go down even more when you look at Latino and then when you look at Asian. So, Absolutely. Uh, did you did you set out with the intention to kind of to paint the whole picture, or did that just kind of come along as you were looking at the stats? Yeah, it just came along, you know. And you know, with these statistics, I mean, you can get so much more information, and it's kind of led me into looking at not just the NCAA, but also MLS, NWSL, and even the uh, NA, NAIA as well. You know, so the NCAAs, I think that's where you see the stats are a lot lower when it comes to 
um, blacks, Asians, and uh, Latinos, you know, it gets a little higher, you know, in the NAIA. Like, for example, um, if you look at, like, the women's division uh, in the NAIA, you've got about 7.1% uh, are Latin coaches and about 5.1% are black coaches. But, once again, the number of white coaches dominate, you know, and you're looking at close to 85%. And that's for the women's. And if you look at the men, I think that's where you kind of see more Latin coaches because uh, you got about 25 Latin coaches, and that's about 13%. Uh, black coaches, you got about 13. That's about 6, 6%. But once again, you've got majority white coaches, you know, that's 154 out of the 196 programs. That totals close to 80%. So, um, you know, when I set out to kind of do this data, it was just kind of just looking around, just kind of seeing what's going on, you know, because I think in the past, uh, us as black coaches, we've never had this data before. We don't know where we are, right? So if you don't know where you are, you don't know where you're headed, and you don't know why you're not getting into those uh, opportunities, all right? Like, for example, uh, there's a coach right now, his name is Ty Edwards, and he has been with the University of Michigan as an assistant. He actually, um, I believe, left that role this past winter, but he's got about 15 years' experience in uh, the NCAA coaching you know, from Division Two, you know, up to Division One, and he's got an A license, you know. Now, this winter, there were about 25 programs that became available for head coaching positions, and Kai told me he can't even get an opportunity to get on campus for an interview. You know, now here's a guy that has extreme credentials, all right, he's climbed the coaching ladder, but he hasn't had that opportunity, all right. So it's just kind of understanding, like, why do these things happen? You know, and I think you can always start with numbers and you kind of dig a little deeper. Yeah, that's so interesting. I hope that answers your question. No, it does. And it's interesting that you bring up Kai's name. And I, I've been in contact with Kai over the last two to three months, and I've been wanting to bring him on the podcast. I wanted to bring him on when he was still on staff at Michigan. Uh, didn't work okay. out. And then now he's, you know, he's looking for another gig, and he's kind of made the decision to, to you know, just – I don't know if stay quiet is the right is the right thing, but he's just kind of looking for a job first before he, you know, wants to do any type of media, I guess. But uh, just this morning, just this morning, somebody sent me a text message and said, "Hey, you should get Kai Edwards on your podcast." And I was like, "Oh my gosh, I'm trying, I'm trying." Um, but yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I've had Kai as a guest on the podcast before. Uh, at the time, he was coaching at St. Mary's. And then I think he left St. Mary's to go to Ari somewhere in Arizona. Um, but I know that he's bounced around. And I know I know about his credentials. He sends me pictures when he when he travels to Croatia because I'm Croatian. So he'll send me pictures okay. when he when he's over there studying and, and traveling through those academies. It's pretty funny. Um, nice. But yeah, he, he's yeah he's a he's a great example of of kind of what's going on right now. Um, Absolutely. Have you met him personally? I have. Yeah. I have uh, I met him a couple times at our, our, uh, at our meetings. The nice. Meetings. And so yeah. that that leads me into something else that, that is in your article. And I don't know if you want to talk specifically about your article and where it's going or, or how it's going to be distributed. But um, in in your in your article that you wrote, you kind of mentioned how people get the jobs that they get. Or I think it's a quote from another from another coach. And, and the quote here, actually, I think I have it written down right here. So uh, says the coach explains a majority of the hires that take place in the NCAA level are based on networking rather than one's body of work. And so when I think about Kai's situation. It, that kind of makes sense because his body of work, it would be a no brainer, right? The a licensed coach, he's been right. in all these other places. So body of work would be fine, but because jobs are basically given on networking, it, it doesn't, mm -hmm. it doesn't offer him very much. So, uh, right. can you, can you talk about who said that? And then kind of like the context of how that came up? Yeah. So this was, uh, Patrice Paris. He is, um, actually a head coach at the uh, university of, uh, North Georgia. And uh, he's been there since 2006, and uh, he's actually completing his, uh, uh, his dissertation as well. So I've had some, you know, discussions with Patrice as well. It's a very, very well-spoken um, individual. You know, he writes extremely well. And, uh, you know, kind of, you know, adding this quote to the article, you know, kind of gets you thinking, you know, the whole adage, like it says, you know, it's not what you know, it's uh, who you know. So... I would look at things also from the standpoint of the athletic director itself. You know, a lot of athletic directors, 
who are doing the hiring, uh, quite a bit of them don't know much about soccer, all right? A lot of them tend to be older, all right? Now, there are, in the NCAA Division One out of the 326 schools, there are about 20 black athletic uh, directors, and all of the black athletic directors, none of them really have a soccer background, all right? So it's just, you know, so if you look at that number and then you look at all the other athletic directors as well, I think, you know, that is kind of the biggest problem. They're not having a soccer background, so they're not really being able to say, okay, well, this person is qualified to do this, or this person is qualified to do that. Uh, now, there was a coach, um, his name is Rod LaFlory, who also uh, quoted in the article as well. And he's from uh, Occidental College in uh, Los Angeles, actually, and uh, it's a Division three school. And uh, he mentioned that, you know, instead of actually doing uh, a face-to-face hire, maybe the athletic director should, you know, when there's an opportunity for a coach to come in for an interview, take him out on the field, you know, and maybe have to work with the players and actually show what they can do, you know, because I think, when you go on an interview, you know, I know there's the whole equal opportunity employer thing, which I think is bullshit sometimes, to be honest. But, um, you know, as far as the rule that the government puts in place, you know, I think when people are doing the hiring, they kind of have an idea as to who they want to represent their school, who they trust. All right. So I think if we can, you know, of course, you got to go through the whole vetting process. You got to make sure this person is reliable and this person is good when it comes to your school, but you're also got to, Look at what that person can do, you know. So if you like directors, that's what Rod had mentioned. That's one suggestion, you know, as far as improving the hiring. Because, you know, as far as the coaches, what we're looking for is just kind of like an equal playing field. All right. We want to be able to show what we can do, you know. Judge us on what we can do, not how we look or how we speak or how we do that. Judge us on what we can do. All right. And we can polish everything up and everything else up. So, you know, uh, you know, Patrice makes a good point, you know, in his quote. and. I think that's something that is always going to be an issue because that's something that we deal with as a country. You know, it's not about what you know. It's about who you know and who trusts you, you know, to get positions. So. Yeah, I, I've from all my experience in in me trying to get a, a coaching position, I've ran into that same roadblock where it's guys that have had, you know, the, the networking, the better networking or the better uh, connections that have gotten the jobs over me. Uh, regardless of you know their body of work versus my body of work, and I remember specifically this is a childish example, right? But so a, a U10 boys team. I've been coaching soccer mm-hmm. for twelve for twelve years. I've been coaching soccer at various levels, and the person that got the job at this at this club in San Luis Obispo, California, was somebody with zero years of coaching experience. He was a, just a, a college a college player, and he was okay. kind of like the like the the show or the star of the show at the college team. And so they gave him the U10 coaching job instead of the person with 12 years of experience. And I was absolutely livid. So, <laughs> yeah. So. That, that happens. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. that happens. It's unfortunate because now that child is not going to get the opportunity to work with a coach like yourself who could probably teach him or her, you know, something that'll take them to the next level. You know, it's about the person who knows the person who's making that decision. You know, and I think that's just a big problem in the U.S., and that's kind of why we're faced with the issue with the men not making the World Cup. And as far as the women's team, you know, the rest of the nations are catching up. You know, so 2019, a lot of people think next year at the Women's World Cup it's going to be a uh, easy World Cup in France for them to win. I don't think that's going to be the case. You know, I think we in this country, we, we deal with so much politics at the youth level, uh, even the professional level, you know, and especially at the college level, that it's really – Hunting, you know, our ability as a nation to develop into a soccer nation. You know, I spent time earlier this month at the AGM, you know, in Orlando. And, I mean, the politics, you know, between the six candidates who were running the six soccer candidates, and then you had Kathy Carter, and then you had Carlos Cordero. I mean, you could just feel the energy at the AGM, you know, the entire, you know, weekend that I was there. It was just, it, it, it just something was off. You know, it's just not about soccer. You know, it's about everything else, you know. It's about the politics. It's about who knows who. It's about who can vote for what and what they can get in return. And I mean, it's really, really, really killing our sport, big time. Yeah, I've I've said it before. I don't know if I've said it on the podcast, and people probably won't like this, but things like the AGM and 
the the coaches convention, the NSCA or United United Soccer Coaches Convention. To me, those are just big circle jerks, and those are just people. Those are just people that are looking to make connections and you know go be friendly with people and see how they can uh, you know get a, a, a step ahead of people by just knowing the right people. And to me, that and to me that that is not right. That the the people that and this is very I'm generalizing here, right? And, and I apologize, but. Those are people that are looking to get ahead in maybe the wrong way, and they're not looking to uh, get ahead with their work. They're looking to get ahead with their connections, and that just absolutely pisses me off. So, exactly, exactly, and, and even if you look at maybe you know the SoCal uh, uh, State Youth Association, I know you're you know you're based in California, but just just looking at what I saw there at the AGM, you see a lot of people in these power positions who don't know anything about soccer. Their kids played soccer yep. maybe 15, 20 years ago, and all of a sudden they're still on the board. They're, they're still on the board for the state. Yep. Why is that? You understand? There's a lady, actually, her um, son played with my brother. My brother's 42 years old. He's seven years older than me. And this was back in the 90s. And this lady is still the treasurer of a soccer club, of a local soccer club in our area. Still, she has no kids in the club. She didn't have any grandkids in the club. But she's still the treasurer for this club because this club brings in three, four million dollars. Yep. You know, there's just, you know, it, it, it's a big problem. You know, there's a lot of people sitting in positions who don't have a love for the game, they don't care for the game, but they look at it as as an easy way to make money. You know, they look at it as an easy way to be able to travel to Orlando and sit around, you know, a hotel and just, you know, sit around, drink and just talk crap. You know, yep. not, nothing about the game. Nothing about advancing the game. You know, it's about them just sitting around, talking nothing, and it's just not going to help our country, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now. It's just not. 100% agree. There, there was a tweet. Uh, I, I think I retweeted it this morning, actually. It was from Raymond Verheijen, a, a Dutch guy. Are you familiar with who that is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I'm not, no. Okay, so, so Raymond uh, tweeted out something about how like discouraging it is for young people in soccer to be getting involved if they have to work with a dinosaur. So somebody that's just been, been there for years and years and years and years. It's like, how can this person, this young coach or this young person that wants to get involved, uh, you know, still do the work that they want to do while having to work with this person that has, you know, ideas or thoughts that are just so outdated and so just, just wrong in, in modern day. And, what you just said about the person just, that just is kind of just occupying a board seat for whatever reason she's occupying a board seat. It, it's, Oh my God, it's disgusting. It's for power. It's, it's just for power, you know, because they, so many people can't give away their power. I mean, it is sad, you know, and even when you look at the U S soccer uh, board of directors, it's the same thing, you know, it's the same type of older people kind of walking around, you know, I don't know if you recently saw, um, the annual budget, you know, that just came out, um, or what the U.S. Soccer spent, you know, over the last, well, over last year, you know, for the 2017. And I mean, you see some of the salaries that these people are making. You look like a guy like Dan Flint. He's a CEO. He's bringing in close to nine hundred thousand dollars. You know, is is that warranted? I don't know. I I really don't know. But my thing once again is, you know. Do we want to continue to put parents in these roles or do we want to continue to start looking at putting business people and also soccer people in these roles who can help us advance uh, our sport? You know, that's, on, that's a big the, issue. You know, when you, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say on the, on the note of, of Dan Flynn collecting like, yeah, nine, 900 K to me, when I think back of the, of the speech that Sunil Gulati gave at the end of the election process, so like right after they tallied the votes and he was kind of giving like his farewell speech and he thanked like the grassroots volunteers, the unpaid volunteers and saying like, oh my gosh, without you guys, we couldn't do this and couldn't do that and blah, blah, blah. And then like you would think like there might be a little bit of modesty in in you know the salaries that u.s soccer collects because that because there is like a lot of modesty uh, across our nation when it comes to coaching soccer like we do not i don't think there's any coach or the majority of coaches would would say they do not get paid great if at all and then something comes out that dan flynn makes nine hundred thousand dollars that's absolutely Mm -hmm. absurd to me 
And then it's a slap in the face when Sunil Gulati says, oh, thank you guys for volunteering and, and, you know, giving us all of your time and all of your effort. You know, that's so nice of you guys. Fuck off. That's what I want to say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's no volunteering when you have $150 million in a war chest. No. I'm sorry. I don't know who's going to sit there and volunteer and not get anything out of anything. You know, because, you know, they, uh, you know the president role, yes, I get it. It's not a paid position. But Sunil is making a lot of money you know, or was making a lot of money behind the scenes, all right? Whether it was like the Copa um, Centario, you know, that they did back in 2016. Uh, I think that tournament ended up bringing close to $50 million or something like that. You know, there's, there's money that's being made behind the scenes, you know, just because you may be called a volunteer. I'm sorry, when you have that much cash rolling around this board, you know, you're getting paid, you know, some way, shape, or form. I can't prove it, so I don't want to accuse the guys, but you're getting paid. Yeah, there's there's been there's been articles written about his salary that he that he supposedly collects from FIFA or from his role like as a CONCACAF representative and and what that might be. It's well into the six figures there as well. I'm sure that there's some type of incentive for him to be part of the the 2026 bid to bring the World Cup to Mm -hmm. the United States there there. You know, it's insane to think that somebody would do that amount of work for for zero dollars in return. Um, exactly, but you know, if he does, then you know, good for him. But it's it's very very hard to, for me to believe. Right, I agree. I agree. Um, I, I want to get I want to get back to some of the stuff that was very very eye opening in your article that you wrote. Um, mm-hmm. and then I have I have a couple of questions after that as well. But zero yeah. black female coaches in Division Two in NCAA. That was yeah. alarming to me. So yeah. out of out of let's see how many I've got to pull up your article really quick out of uh, f- let's see 265 Division two women's soccer head coaching positions available zero black females that's correct and there were ten black males ten black males yeah. did, did did you break down actually the number of of male to female coaches on the women's side of the game I did not because you know, I was more geared towards the black coaches itself, so I didn't break down any statistics. But um, I do have the spreadsheet, and uh, you know that, that's something that we could probably um, generate, you know, over the next uh, couple of weeks. Yeah, I'd be I'd be super interested in that, and a, a reason <laughs> being is that uh, I actually I've reached out to uh, one of the head coaches of one of the I think it's one of three all female staffs in NCAA soccer. So there's only three staff, uh, three complete staffs that are made up of entirely females on the female side of the game in all of, in all of NCAA soccer that when I saw that stat, I was like, Holy shit. Like that's amazing. (laughs) That is. Yeah. And even, you know, the black coaches, I mean, out of the 71 uh, coaches, you probably only have a handful. I think it's probably hovering around anywhere between three to five that have an all black staff. Oh, right? wow. So what tends to ha- yeah, so what tends to happen is a lot of the black coaches, you know, there's still this stigma that we need to have a white face, you know, as an assistant or in some position so that we feel that our customers or the people that we're trying to, to please will accept us, you know, and that's something that I grew up on. That's something that my parents told me. You know, that's something that friends have told me. You know, you need to have a white face in place. And I just, personally, I think you need to hire the best person, all right? And it shouldn't be, well, that person should be white. If the best person so happens to be white in an assistant position, then great. Hire that person. But based upon the 71 coaches, you know, I mean, I looked at some of the credentials for some of the assistant coaches, the other 71 black coaches, some of their assistant coaches, and I know that there are better minority coaches out there that can fill that role of their assistants, you know? So that's an issue also, you know, and that's an issue that I've been talking to the black soccer coaches uh, association about is hiring the best, you know, get out of that stigma of having to hire, you know, a white face just because the white population is the majority of the country. We just shouldn't have to do that because when you do that now, you prevent another minority from getting an opportunity to be an assistant coach and possibly be a head coach five, six years down the road. Um, 
so so I actually I I did go ahead and I posted one of the stats from mm-hmm. your article and it got some yep. immediate feedback and one of the one of the big questions was how how did you acquire all of this data and uh, and and then the second question second most asked question is where can they find it okay the way that I did it was I went through each and every school all right and I clicked on each and every coach I read through each profile all right for every coach and pretty much if the coach you know was Asian, you know, they went into the Asian category. Those with Latin, you know, and as far as Latin, you know, what I looked for was, you know, based upon the profile, I wanted to see where the person was from, right? Okay, originally, all right? As far as the black coaches, pretty much looked at, you know, where they were from, of course, uh, are they black, you know? And there were probably, out of the black coaches, probably one or two mixed race coaches. So I just, you know, categorize them as black because that's kind of the way that the country, you know, categorizes um, when they do their uh, uh, census. So that's what I did. You know, I just went through each and every college, looked at every single coach, and the NCAA was very, very easy because the profiles are all up to date. You know, so you know if there's a white coach, a black coach, Hispanic, Asian coach. I mean, that's how simple it was. Now, as far as getting the information, um, I don't know if I want to reveal the information. If someone had a specific question, like, like you know, like what you mentioned, like you would like to see the number of female to male coaches. No problem. I can generate that information. And if you need me to put the names of the female coaches and the colleges, I can do that. I just don't want to give away the entire spreadsheet, you know, because gotcha. it's a pretty massive spreadsheet that took two months to compile this data. So it's a matter of me going through each and every single college. You know, and I even continued, like I mentioned, you know, I'm going through data right now with MLS. You know, and MLS is a lot easier because you're looking at only 23 teams. And if you look at the 23 teams, you've got 18 white coaches, you've got four Hispanic coaches, and you've got one black coach, and that one black coach is Patrick Vieira. You know, and we all know, you know, who that is. Great, you know, Arsenal uh, player, you know, former French national team player. Uh, if you look at the assistant coaches, you know, you have about 58 assistant coaches in the MLS. Now, some teams carry more assistant coaches than others. So, for example, uh, LAFC, you know, Bob Bradley's group, he's carrying three assistants, all right? Um, Toronto FC, they carry three assistants, all right? And some uh, uh, of the programs only carry two, two assistants. So, there are 58 assistant head coaches, you know, white, 37, uh, Latin, 12, nine, black, zero Asian. Um, and then when you look at the goalkeeping positions, not every team carried a goalkeeping position. So, for example, the New England Revolution, you got Brad Friel. He's now the coach there. We know Brad, you know, he's a great, uh, you know, national team goalkeeping uh, uh, player for so many years, played overseas. Why would they carry a goalkeeping position, seeing that they have a head coach as a goalkeeper? So, they totaled 20, which is, of course, less than the number of teams, but then you still had 17 white goalkeeper coaches. You had two black goalkeeper coaches, and you had one um, uh, Hispanic goalkeeper coach. So, like I said, these are stats. I've gone through each and every single uh, uh, college for the NCAA, even the NAIA. I went through every single uh, program uh, professional as well. Uh, if you look at NWSL head coaches, they're down at nine teams because the Boston Breakers um, left uh, a couple weeks ago, and they have nine white coaches and zero across the board for every other race. And I want to say, and the majority of those nine coaches, I believe, are male, right? Majority are male, yes. I think you may catch a couple female. I think Vera Paw was one, and then I believe another female. I I, I don't have that. It's it's on my spreadsheet, so yeah, yeah, man. It's it's. uh, I know. I know that it's a lot of, uh, a lot of work to gather that data. Um, and I know you're, you're going to get grilled on it, man. I'm just going to be honest with you. <laughs> of course. Of course. Uh, man, no problem. No problem at all. Yeah. So one, one question that, that, that immediately, uh, came to my mind was if you're just, if you're just looking at, at the pictures or if you're just reading the profiles, uh, how, how are you determining that somebody, you know, maybe with the last name, like Rodriguez, for instance, 
is is Latino or not Latino? Good question. Right. So Rodriguez, I would classify in Latin. So I also looked at the origin also, the origin of the last name as well. So that was okay. a factor. Okay. How would you, how would you do that? Uh, just based upon, you know, the last name, you know, Rodriguez, um, you know, just, just knowing that. So you just, if you Google, you know, a last name like Rodriguez or Torres or Sanchez, you know, which are, uh, you know, typical Latin names, you know, it would be classified under Latin. So just knowing the last name. Okay. Got it. Yeah. I am. I'm, I. I mean, I'm not. I'm not trying to dispute anything, but I'm just saying that there's no going to be people that there's going to be people that come at you. Like I, I posted something, and and somebody right away. I posted something about the the Latino, uh, the number of Latino coaches, which was seventy, in in your data, and somebody right away was like, "Well, isn't it a better argument against, uh, or that there's." Um, what am I trying to say? Discrimination against Asian coaches if there's if there's less than, you know, both black and Latino coaches. So it's like, yeah, you can, yeah, you I mean, can absolutely argue right. that too. Yeah, you can make that argument. But if you look at the Asian population in the country, it's at five percent, and it is right. All right, I, I remember looking at the census. Uh, what does the census come out every four years or so? But I remember looking at it back in two thousand six, and I believe the Asian population was around two percent. You know, but if you look at the players, it kind of all goes back to the players once again. You know, it's like the NFL, for example. You got, you know, 66% of the players are African-American. You look at the NBA, you got about 75% to 80% of the players are African-American. But once again, if that's the case, then you would think that the NBA would have more African-American coaches. You would think the NFL would have more African-American coaches, all right, in, in positions. But it's not the case. Because remember, the higher-ups, the owners, in the NFL, for example, all 32 owners, well, I think there's uh, Khan, who is uh, the Jacksonville Jaguars owner. He's the only non-white owner in the NFL out of the 32 teams. They are the ones who are making the decision because it's being passed down to the president or the GM, and then they're making decisions on which coach they want to go to next. So, once again, I mean, I'm not advocating for higher black, higher black, higher black. I'm advocating for higher the best. You know, because in soccer, at the end of the day, Look at Kai Edwards, for example, all right, a licensed coach. And we've got plenty of other A licensed coaches as well, or coaches as well. We've got plenty D licensed coaches, plenty C licensed coaches. We want to give these guys opportunities, all right, to be able to coach for 20, 30 years at a university, all right. Take, for example, my coach at a um, University of Delaware. He was there for about 20 years, 20, 25 years, and he was only there because. One, well, the reason why he stayed a lot longer was because his daughter was going to the University of Delaware. And he stayed on as a coach, and he was also uh, a PE teacher, I believe, at the time. And his daughter was able to go for free. As soon as his daughter graduated from the University of Delaware, he left. They, Ian Hennessy, who's now currently the coach, he took over. All right? So it's just those reasons are kind of impeding us as coaches to get opportunities. That could have been given to somebody else who then could have moved on from the University of Delaware and maybe coached at the MLS level or maybe coached overseas somewhere. Okay, take a guy like Caleb Porter. Yes, of course, he's not black or he's not black, Latin, or Asian, but he was able to go through the University of Akron, then to the U20 or U23 men's national team, then to Portland, you know, and now he's looking for opportunities overseas. So the point I'm trying to make is there are too many people in these head coaching positions in the NCAA who are in it for the wrong reason. They're not soccer people. If you're not a soccer person, you should not be in a soccer position. Yeah, I remember having a conversation with a with a head coach from a women, actually a women's division one head coach, and he was describing to me how he actually got the position, and he said something about like his wife had a, you know got another job at the school, and they needed the school at the time needed a soccer coach, so he like threw his name in the hat. He didn't really have much soccer experience. Fast forward twenty something years, and the guy's still there, and right. he he has no intention on leaving, probably. None, none whatsoever, none whatsoever. None. So, you know that's that, that's my problem, and that's the reason why I think these numbers are so high and so skewed towards white coaches, because you've got these guys in positions for the wrong reason. There's still a, a, a ton of them who've been sitting on jobs for for twenty, thirty, forty years, just sitting on a paycheck. I think uh, Hope College, for example, 
one, uh, he just recently retired, but he'd been at that position for about 28 years. You know, so these athletic directors, yes, I get it. Some soccer programs are not bringing in the revenue, like, say, a University of Maryland or, say, a UCLA or, you know, some of the other programs who charge, you know, you when you go watch their game. All right? But keep in mind that when you put a good soccer team out there on the field and you're winning and you're successful, you're also using that as a marketing tool for your university, right? So more students will come to your university. But if you continue not to pay close attention to who you're hiring and you're not giving these coaches who are in these positions, I mean, there's some coaches in these positions who have sub-500 records, all right? I think I saw one coach who had probably won in, I think, 10 years, maybe 20, 30 games, you know? So that means he's got a sub-par 500 record, you know, probably, you know, 30%, and then this guy is still in a position. He's still in a position when there could be somebody else who's a soccer person who actually really cares about the game, cares about growing his career, can now step in that position and take that team to the next level. All right? That's the issue that I have, you know, as to why these numbers are the way they are. You still got a lot of dinosaurs, you know, and unfortunately dinosaurs are majority white coaches who got involved back in the 80s and the 90s. You know, these guys are not advancing their education. They're not taking any courses. They're not going overseas. They're not looking to do anything else but stay in these positions like my old coach at University of Delaware and wait until his daughter graduates and then, you know, he moves on after that. He gets what he wants. I just don't think that's right. I don't think it's right either. And yeah. I'm curious what the conversation has been like amongst um uh, the people that you've presented this this data to. So you you said that you met with you know, a group of people uh, for like a lunchtime meeting at the at the convention. Have you presented this data to those same people? And and if you have, what has the the feedback been? Yeah. So the data has only gone out to the the NCAA coaches. All right. That's why Andrew uh, Bonata received it because you know he well he's actually uh, an NAIA coach. Uh, you know with uh, uh, Washington event, right? He's the assistant coach. So it hasn't gone out to the general population yet in the Black Soccer Coaches Association. It's circulated among our um, uh, leadership group, okay, for the most part. So at the lunchtime social that we had in Philadelphia during the USC, that was back in early January with the conference, the data wasn't as advanced as it is now. Um, at the time, I had just gone through uh, Division One coaches. Uh, on the men's side at that point. So this data, like, I, like you can see in the article, recently completed, you know, on the Division three level uh, a little over a week ago. So. Yeah, and and what, I guess, at what point do you start to talk about how to fix things or how to come up with solutions to, to these problems? It starts now. now. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it starts now. I mean, it's just not data that's just gonna um, be out there and you know just gonna complain about it, you know, because complaining doesn't do anything. So the very first thing that we're gonna do, and when I was in Orlando, actually, um, uh, I met uh, Don Garber. You know, took a picture with him and spoke with him briefly. And uh, MLS, for example, they have a, a, a diversity initiative that they implemented back in 2007 that they have not upheld. Uh, for example, when Brad Friedel got the position for the New England uh, Revolution in December. Uh, they had interviewed, I believe, five coaches, of which four out of the five were white coaches. I think Steve Ralston was one. Uh, Pat Newton, I think, who had previously been with the United uh, States men's national team when Arena was there. Uh, he was another. And then there were two other coaches. And then the one uh, that they interviewed was uh, um, an Argentinian coach who hadn't coached in 10 years. And I think he's coaching one of the clubs, uh, Boca Juniors, I believe, in Argentina. And it was kind of more like a soft interview. They didn't even bring him in. Like, they just spoke to him over the phone. So it really wasn't serious, you know, in the first place. So if, if, if that's the New England Revolution and they're doing that, are they really upholding the 2007 MLS diversity initiative? Okay, so that's one case that I'm going to make for the league. Um, as a group, as a black soccer coaches group, uh, we will advocate and we will speak to the MLS, you know, about their diversity initiative that they implemented back in 2007 and what they're doing to hold it. And if they're not, then we've got to hold them accountable. we got to call them out on issues such as 
the hiring of Brad Friedel for the New England uh, Revolution position in December. So um, that's one thing. Um, as far as the NCAA, um, suggestions that I'm getting are, you know, speaking to the NCAA about possibly implementing uh, the Rooney rule. And I don't think that's very likely just because if they do that for soccer, they're going to have to do that for all the other programs right in the NCAA. And I think you're probably looking at over close to, you know, 20,000 programs that they have, you know, in the various sports, you know, throughout the system. Now that's going to be tough to police, right? There's going to be no way to do that. So I think the NCAA, you know, as far as, you know, speaking to them, I think presenting them with these statistics, explaining the situation in soccer, letting them know what's happening, what's going on. Now the NCAA, if you look at their website back in 2010, they do have um, a diversity uh, initiative that they set forth, and it's actually on their website. And it reads, the NCAA believes in diversity, inclusion, and gender equality with all personnel uh, working within the NCAA organization. This was drafted back in 2010. The NCAA wants to have administrators, coaches, and student-athletes of different backgrounds to meet and enhance the cultural needs of the universities and the NCAA. All right? So, like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, there's no issue when it comes to, to students and players in soccer as far as uh, minorities, all right? There are abundance of them. We've got players coming in from Africa, the Caribbean. You know, you got African-American kids playing here in the U.S. who are going off and they're playing in college. Now it's how do they uphold what they mention on their website on the administrative level and the coaching level. And as you can see by these statistics, they're not doing that. So one one interesting. Go ahead. Yeah, what one interesting thing that got that got brought up in the comments of the of what I posted earlier today was uh, about players and 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 the breakdown or the split between minority and white players in NCAA. And then mm-hmm. it, I mentioned, I think from your article, it said like a forty sixty split, so forty percent minority, sixty percent white, and mm-hmm. uh, and then somebody mentioned you should look at the amount of foreign players that are coming in from, you know, other countries and see if that skews the numbers compared to, you know, available American players from either minority okay. or white backgrounds. So that's a suggestion for more, for more work, dude. You, I'm giving you more work. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. Thanks. But you know what? Uh, we got to get to the bottom of this. You know, we, we got to get to the bottom of why this is a problem, you know, in the NCAA and why it's hurting a lot of our uh, minority coaches from getting positions. I mean, you know, coaching in soccer, you know, you can only make so much money, right? You can only make, you know, a living coaching a team. You may get, I don't know, in Maryland, last I checked, I think if you coach one team, it's $6,000 or something a season. All right. You almost have to be an academy director, you know, in order to make any type of living in this country when it comes to coaching. But you still have people in positions at the NCAA level who are not only connected, who are not only collecting a base of say eighty thousand. Remember, they're collecting money on top with their camps, their clinics, and then I know they, they have identification clinics now. So they're making more money on top of that, and it's just like these are not soccer people that are doing it. You know, these are people who so happen to get in the game back in the seventies and eighties. So you know, that's why we're doing this. And then I think you know, going back to what you mentioned, you know, if you kind of look at. Uh, you know, the number of foreign players, the number of American players, all of it correlates and all of it kind of comes together, you know, kind of give us a better understanding as to why we are where we're at right now. Yeah, I, I honestly don't know if there's a better time than, than now to present information like this because of the situation that United States soccer is in, missing the Men's World Cup with the Women's World Cup just around the corner, missing the last mm-hmm. few Olympics on the men's side. Uh, the new the new president coming in and promising some sort of change and more transparency and and things like that. So there yeah there really couldn't be a better time to to get this into the spotlight and right. and that's Absolutely. exactly why I wanted to bring you on the show and and give you a chance to introduce yourself and and your research and then for people to have a chance to connect with you and follow and and get involved as well. Absolutely, no problem. Where where can no people problem. where can people reach you or, or connect with you either on social media or, or other other platforms and where can they find out about uh, man I'm blanking on the name Black Soccer oh I'm gonna blow it Black Soccer Membership Association <laughs> <laughs> sure no problem so we're developing a site like I said I just uh, 
recently joined the, the group about six months ago, and um, the group is, is, is separate because it runs under the United Soccer Coaches, so we're also forming an association. And you can reach me at media at blacksoccercoaches.org. Got it. And what about Twitter or, or Instagram or anything? Do you guys have any activity on there? We're not there yet. Okay. We're not there yet. But, I mean, we are developing our site. Our uh, website will be up uh, in June, and we will put these statistics, and then uh, we're going to continue to roll from there. You know, Instagram, we'll be on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, um, everything, Pinterest, Nice. Yeah. Pinterest, man. I'm actually hooked on Pinterest Sorry, right now. <laughs> oh, you are? Okay. I don't know much about it, to be honest. So, um, I know that's not going to be my area. I'm a social media manager who's going to deal with that, but that's just going to help us to continue to grow as an organization. Um, you know, and in the past, you know, the Black Soccer Coaches Organization um, Association, I mean, hasn't really done much, you know, to be honest. Um, it's always been kind of geared towards individuals. You know, what can individuals get out of it to enhance their career? So uh, with the group that we have, uh, you know, we're about seven strong on the leadership group. And then, like I mentioned, in the United Soccer Coaches Black Membership, uh, we're looking at about 750 coaches and administrators. So uh, this is probably the first time ever that we've actually had a leadership group that is willing to, you know, do the research. Uh, you know, we're willing to advocate. We're willing to really operate as an organization and association. So we will, you know, make sure to continue to put more data out there. You know, it's real-time data. You know, we're not skewing numbers to make us look good. We don't do that. It is what it is. All right? And then from there, we're going to, you know, use it to our advantage. And, you know, we're going to make changes. You know, we're going to make changes and try to do the best that we can for, for this country. Well, we're here and down to help however we can, man. If it's just, you know, tweeting out numbers or or bringing you back on the show to talk more about it, whatever we got to do to help you out, just let us know. Absolutely. All right. I'd love to. All right, man. Well, I appreciate your time. No problem, John. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 Podcast. And thank you to Justin Reed for coming on the show. If you guys have questions for Justin, and I'm sure that you guys are going to be left with questions after listening to this episode, remember that you can reach him by emailing media at blacksoccercoaches.org. Once again, that's media at blacksoccercoaches.org. And Justin will be happy to answer any questions that you might have and keep you up to date on all the research and everything that he is doing as well. If you guys want to learn more about 343 and what we offer, you guys can check that out at 343coaching.com. That's the numbers 3, 4, and 3, coaching, all spelled out, dot com. And just a reminder for that as well, it is the members of the 343 coaching program that help support and develop and sustain and fund this podcast. So thank you to all of the 343 soccer coaching members. All right. With that, that's all I got. We will catch you guys next time here on the 343 podcast. Thank you for listening.